look, you have to own development. People who sit around waiting for their company to give them a training program, I just think that's the wrong approach. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another edition of Predicting the Turn. Today, I'm joined with one of my dear friends, Tim Kopp, who's had an amazing career as Chief Marketing Officer of Exact Target, Venture Partner at Hyde Park Venture Partners, and a whole host of other amazing accomplishments. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Good to be here. Well, I always like to start off with the journey that my guests have been on. And as I hinted, you've had a fascinating path. Can you talk about how you went from leading digital marketing in the CPG space for companies like P&G and Coca-Cola to being a pioneer in the B2B marketing world as the CMO of Exact Target, and now to your role in the venture capital space at Hyde Park Venture Partners? Yeah, it's not a path I would have predicted, but it has been a lot of fun. A mix of luck and being at the right place at the right time and working with great people. So I had about a seven-year run at P&G being an early-on digital marketing pioneer like you, and that, that was a ton of fun. And from there, um, had the opportunity to move to Coke, where I was their VP of worldwide digital marketing. So looked after everything but the U.S. That amounted to a lot of time being on planes, is what that amounted to. But amazing job. So I had sort of this ten years B two C CPG experience, and I frankly just wanted something with more growth, more innovation, more room to run. And uh, this is when the whole, not to date myself, but the whole advent of SaaS and technology and all those things were coming about. So I made a pretty pretty big shift into B2B. There really were very few B2B CMOs at the time, but made the leap over in initially into a company called Web Trends, which is one of the early on web analytics pioneers, was there about 18 months. And then from there, got recruited to Exact Target, where I had a just amazing opportunity to be part of their growth journey from uh, employee uh, 100 and something up to you know growing it to, to the $2.7 billion acquisition by Salesforce a few years ago. And then started doing my own early stage angel investing. And um, Love the work, loved working with entrepreneurs, loved being part of high growth companies, but thought, you know, what I really want to do is get back to doing this as part of a team. It's, it's kind of hard doing it alone. And so found found the team at Hyde Park about five years ago and been uh, leading their Indianapolis office and on board with them uh, for the last five years. That's awesome. So, I mean, in that journey you just described, you've really kind of reinvented yourself with a common thread, but reinvention into new categories, new areas, new things. And in fact, your digital footprint kind of describes it as being a SaaS CMO turned into an early stage venture investor. So when you look back at these career switches that you've made, how did you approach your own professional development of learning new industries and learning best practices and going in with that mindset of re-educating yourself? You know, the way I thought about the first chunk of my career is I wanted to get the very best training. Some people hop straight into startups and it works awesome for them. Nothing wrong with that. I wanted to get the very best training exposure network I could. So large CPGs were perfect for me. From there, I I don't think, look, you have to own development. People who sit around waiting for their company to give them a training program, I just think that's the wrong approach. You've got to take it, own it. In my view is you've got to get, be just incredibly curious about what's happening. And look, what I I think I've been able to do is see around corners a little bit. But if you've read any of Malcolm Gladwell's work, kind of on 10,000 hours, I've just been fortunate enough to get in my 10,000 hours faster than a lot of people. So, you know, when P&G was, or when Coke was looking to hire a VP of digital marketing, they wanted somebody with five years of CPG digital marketing experience. 
well, there's probably like 12 of us. <laughs> so I'd like to think I was a phenomenal marketer, but the chance, I think the reality is I got in my time and my hours faster than anybody else. Same thing on B2B. I got in very, very early, had a chance to develop the skill set, get the reps, get in my 10,000 hours. And I'm still uh, kind of midway through that journey with, uh, with Hyde Park, but it's, it's been a lot of fun. So I think it's sitting around corners. I like to really have a personal board of directors that helps sort of guide me and steer me. But I also think you can't just take somebody else's, like, what should I go do? They're not going to know. You have to know what you want to go do, and you have to own your own development, and you've got to be courageous about making some moves. Yeah. So speaking of that, knowing what you want to do and having that belief, you had a hypothesis when you move over to web trends and ultimately to exact target that B2B wasn't using those best practices oh, of that's consumer marketing. Yeah. Uh, so what drove that insight, and then how did you really apply that to the world of exact target? Really, what B2B marketing was when I joined was demand generation. Yeah. It was managing a marketing funnel. And basically, the only thing the CMO needed or the CEO knew what to ask the CMO is where's the leads. Yeah. That was it. So, what I think I was able to bring from the B2C side is it's about delivering an experience. And marketing is about, of course, I, I, I enjoy having mastery over the numbers, but it's more than the numbers. And it's really building brand as your platform that unleashes this massive sort of flywheel effect inside the company and outside the company. So it's how do you bring together the best of the quantitative side of sort of B2B with the experiential side of B2C? I love that. And so a few episodes ago, I had Scott Dorsey on to talk about the overall being the founder of Exact Target in that yeah. journey. And he gave a ton of credit to the color of orange uh, being the cultural insight that was one of those elements that you brought in. Yeah. You know, what led you to say, I'm going to make this color be the thing that's going to be a key <laughs> part of the brand? And then how'd you convince a board and investors and executives that frankly probably didn't have a background in brand building and why that could work? Well, you know, honestly, I was very fortunate to work with Scott and have him as a partner through this. Because if you have a CEO who doesn't fundamentally believe in the power of marketing, it's pretty tough. And yeah. Scott, if you know him, he's just an exceptional level five leader, but really does believe in marketing and has great instincts around it. So in particular, when you think of any great B2B company, they own a color. So with Omniture back in the day, it was green, and they were all about building green. Marketo was uh, very much about purple, and it was just studying all the great brands own it a very primary color within what they're doing. I think once you've really made it, you own all the colors. So you, Microsoft and Google are now rainbows, yeah. and so which is kind of interesting how they've done it. But you have to create this very... It was really about creating a movement. And to create a movement, you have to have consistency of your brand across every touch point that somebody would engage with it. And the reality is most people are more visual learners than we are auditory learners. So somebody could sit here and tell you the 30-second elevator pitch, and it's not going to have the same emotional connection that it would when you see a color and the way you connect with it. So we have this amazing kind of culture and spree decor that was already inside the company. So it was really just creating a brand for it. It was creating a common set of language that people could talk about it. And then the more I studied orange, orange was actually the color of change when you went all the way back into the 1600s and the Dutch would carry big orange flags into battle. And it was the sign of 
Revolution. And so it was like a practical, like what colors are not owned? Orange was one of them. <laughs> and then the more I studied orange and what it stood for, it was very powerful. And then it was, how did you bring some of the branding? It's not about just giving people orange t-shirts. It's what's the whole set of meaning and symbolism that goes behind it. And then how do you connect all those dots? Yeah. Well, and talk about that symbolism and bring it to life. Like I'll never forget the exact target connections conference, mm-hmm. which has become kind of a, in the industry, the role model for how you do a user conference and down to the escalators in the convention center being painted orange and bringing that to life. So what other touch points did you use to kind of get people to embrace it and not just have it be a token thing? You know, it was, so there's a really important saying, I think the, that, that I've been thinking about, which is all great. We use this word authenticity a lot, and I think it's the right word, but I'm sort of a little tired of it as a buzzword. What I think really connects with me is when brands kind of create this emotional connection with you. And it starts with employees who have already connected with that brand. So I think about marketing from the inside out. So I actually didn't start with our customers. I started with our employees and it was a multi like three to six month effort of explaining our core values, what we're about, how they connect into it. And then it wasn't just rolling it out from corporate. It was allowing like an engineering department interprets culture different than a marketing department. And our Brazilian team interpreted different from our team in Germany. And that's great. So how do you create this kind of common framework, but then allow freedom within the framework for how different people can connect to it and really own it? And if you think about all the great brands that you just connect with, like forget this sort of podcast and the jargon that's behind it. So if you're in a car right now or walking or running, all the great brands that you connect with, there's this humanity behind it. And it's they tend to be very founder-led, founder-driven, and they have a personality. And how do you unleash that and really bring it to life in a common way that then you're but it's also not a country club. It's something that becomes very accessible and customers want to connect into that. And I think most great brands have figured out how to tap into that. That's perfect. So you've been at the forefront of this rise of marketing technology, you know, for really more than a decade that's been kind of changing the front face of marketing. So exact target, that was the emergence of the marketing cloud. Now as an investor, it's a host of different companies, including companies like Terminus that are really revolutionizing account-based marketing and everything that means. How do you think MarTech has changed the definition of what it means to be a marketer today? Because it's a hell of a lot different than when you and I started at P&G. It's very different. We didn't really have any technology tools in our arsenal. It was running around trying to figure it out. Then I think there might have been a period that we got too reliant on technology tools. And you know, the average company might have more than 10 different pieces of MarTech, but they all weren't kind of coming together, which is why the cloud sort of came about. Now, I think what you're seeing is getting account-based marketing is the first, the the major sort of evolutionary changes in MarTech seem to happen on about a six-year cycle to me. So when you go back and you look at email, then you go to marketing automation, now it's account-based marketing. You have some micro-cycles in between with social and some, but the the, the billion-dollar moves tend to happen more in like the six-year kind of time frame. And account-based marketing, I think, is very symbolic of MarTech in general, which is, if for those of you who don't know what account-based marketing is, it's the idea of flipping your marketing funnel. Instead of getting from 100 leads down to 20 opportunities to one account, it's, why don't you just name the 10 accounts that you want to go after? Name those accounts and go after them. And, and it's really humanizing marketing. And I think that is the next trend. It's not really about technology, but how do you really use this technology and combine that with a very authentic way of bringing the brand experiences 
but but the technology helps enable that, and we're not maybe as reliant on the tech tools as we thought we would be a few years ago. Yeah, makes sense. So you know, we're about three years into the cycle of account-based marketing with Terminus launching yeah. about three to four years ago, and Sangram's actually going to be joining in a, an episode right. in a few weeks. Good. So when you think about that, what's the first glimmer that you think is that next horizon? Where is marketing heading you know, three to six years from now in that next wave that's coming after? Boy, I wish I knew for sure. But where I think account-based marketing is a glimmer of where it's headed, which is more humanization, I think the companies, another company that I've been involved with and enjoyed watching is a company that used to be called G2 Crowd, now G2.com. And what I like about that, it's that there's so much clutter, and I think there's like 1,800 different MarTech solutions that are out there now. Who's going to go about helping you sort through that clutter and really figuring out what it is that you should be using? Or part, and it, it fascinated me that you could get more up-to-date information on what restaurant you and I could walk to after this and spend $10 on a cup of coffee or a sandwich than you could a $100,000 software platform. So they've aggregated you know, upwards of a million reviews that helps you sort through that. And I think there will be other things that come together that are, I'm calling sort of meta SaaS platforms, a platform that'll sit on top of platforms and help integrate it all through common APIs. So think about almost um, like a mint.com for CMOs in some way, something that takes your 10 different things, but aggregates that into a real-time dashboard where you could see everything. I don't think it'll be the 14th point solution. I think it'll be something that either sits on top of everything that's there or helps make sense of the clutter. At Predicting the Turn, we talk a lot about growth challenges facing business leaders today. And as we talk about growth, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Chinatown Bureau. Chinatown Bureau is a consumer experience firm solely focused on driving brand growth. They move brands beyond advertising towards a new brand growth playbook. They do this by building the strategies and technology tools that make each customer relationship as valuable as possible streamlining operations, and creating new revenue opportunities. Their clients are Fortune 500s and high-growth startups alike, and their engagements range from strategy development through full implementation of a new consumer experience. If you're experiencing slow brand growth and looking for a better solution beyond just advertising, visit ChinatownBureau.com to schedule a call today. So, uh, you know, speaking of CMOs, you wrote a great post that was about the seven personas of the chief marketing officer in that modern CMO, if you will. Can you talk about those and how's a company think about what they need from their marketing leadership today? I love this question. And it like to be vulnerable. The reason I got into this, you, you would think that I would have been after 20 years of being in marketing, I would have been pretty good at picking marketing candidates and getting CMOs. And I blew the first few hires, to be honest, the, the portfolio companies I worked in. And the reason why is I think when somebody says, I want a CMO, that's very different than wanting a CFO. Because what a CFO does is something you know that's very common across companies. When somebody says they want a CMO, it can mean multiple different things. It can mean somebody who takes the stage and goes and evangelizes. It can mean somebody who builds the brand. It can mean somebody who's a great product marketer. It can mean somebody who's great at demand generation. But there's almost nobody who can do all of those. And so I think what's really important is, and I, there's an article on CMO.com for anybody who wants to go, go see it. And what I tried to do is at least break down the buckets that I see, which are a thought leader CMO, a demand gen CMO, a culture building CMO, a thought leader CMO. And what now I've encouraged the CEOs and boards to do is be very specific about the profile. 
and be very clear on what's the number one priority, the number two priority, and then the things that you're willing to compromise on. So if you find somebody who is terrific at demand generation, they may not be great on a stage. Or if they are terrific at brand building, they may not be as good at the metrics. But you have to know what you need at what stage. And most of the time, actually, when somebody says they need a CMO, they don't actually need a CMO. They need something that's more like a director of marketing to help with a very specific thing. So it's breaking down. I think CMO, more than any other title, has so much stigma, baggage, stereotype, positive and negative associated with it that um, it's just trying to break down that into some piece parts that you can sort of take hold of and identify what what you are, where you want to develop your career, but also for companies to use in a hiring profile. Yeah, without doubt. And I think I find a lot of times that you know when you look at that, not only do they not know how to think about that CMO, but they actually don't know really what they need. That's exactly so right. how do you work with your portfolio companies to kind of double click and get to that essence of here's what marketing can do and thus what you need to find from a persona standpoint? Right. So, you know, I'll be... It depends on the stage of company. Almost always when a company is sub $10 million, I don't think you really need a CMO. Yeah. There are some exceptions. If it's a founder, yes. If it's really about selling into other marketers, possibly. But I'd say 90% of the time, you really don't need a CMO sub $10 million. You need a very specialized person to go and do something. I think um, when it gets to a later stage... I think you're kind of kidding yourself if you say demand generation isn't one or two on the list, because I think demand generation is what gives a marketer the political currency to go do the fun stuff. I didn't go into exact target guns blazing the first year saying, you know what, forget all the numbers for the sales team. Let's just go focus on branding and culture and all the soft, fuzzy stuff. I really dug in on the metrics and making sure that we delivered and we're really crystal clear for every dollar that went into marketing, we can give $3 back. And that sort of gives you the literal and political currency to go and do some of the fun stuff. So I think any company who says demand generation is not high on the list, I usually like, are you kidding yourself? Are you sure? And if it's a company who's just really about trying to build a brand or a movement, sometimes that's not the case. But trying to get the CEO to be very clear, honestly, on what they're willing to compromise on and hire somebody who, who can do what that person can't. So I had to be highly internally focused when I was at Exact Target. So I had to hire a VP of marketing who went and did a lot of the thought leadership and a lot of the outside work. So it's just understanding what your strengths are, what you need to focus on, and then thereby, where does that leave a gap and how do you want to fill it? I love that. And that currency, it's amazing how that's a uh... It's something you need at every step of your career. That's the you same sure advice do. you give somebody coming right out of college. You can't just jump into your dream goal, yep. but we're still learning that lesson 20 years later. I know. It is so true. You just you have to be a ruthless prioritizer, and you have to just deliver in the first 90 days. Yeah. So talking about that kind of uh, mentoring and coaching, it's something I've always admired that you spend a lot of time working with not just your investments, but the community in mentoring and coaching and helping marketers become marketing leaders. When you're doing that mentoring and coaching, how are you thinking about the advice that you're giving to that person that says, my dream is to become a CMO? What do they need to do? What boxes do they need to check? Yeah, it's a great question. I'll tell you, the thing I'm probably most proud of at Exact Target, my tenure there, of course, a lot of the numbers and what we achieved are great, but I think we're over 20 people on my team now who have gone on to be VPs of marketing or CMOs and everybody who's a direct report. And Frankly, you know, I've accomplished far more in my career than I ever thought I would have or could have, uh, just to be honest. So I, I 
love doing what I do. I work harder than I've ever worked, but I take more satisfaction out of seeing others hit their highest potential. And the problem is with marketing, if um, they don't teach it in college the right way, they don't teach. And the only, so there's just not the proper mechanisms to sort of pass along or sort of transfer the knowledge. And I think the best way that you fix that is through exposure. And so what I try to do is expose people to be not just great marketers, but great business leaders. And a great business leader, you have to have context for strategy and what a company is trying to do, then how marketing connects into that. And unfortunately, too many marketers try to start with shiny objects or tools or brand campaigns or slogans and not strategy. So it's trying to take people with a marketing mindset and shift them into more of a business first mindset, understand their strengths and weaknesses and try to do it in a in a very fair, tough love, but kind of radical candor way when they're on track, being very clear, when they're off track, being clear, and then always tying it back to uh, the business objectives and making sure you're very fluent in front of a board or your CEO to explain what you do. Yeah. And how do you find getting that exposure for the marketers at that junior level? Because I think one of the mis- not mistakes yeah. we make, but the disservices we do to junior marketers is you get hired for very tactical things. Oh, so You're the SEO person, yes. the content the person, the person. social like, Yeah. And then one day you magically have to think strategically across all of the tactics. Yes. So how do you get somebody yeah. that exposure if they're just doing one piece yeah. of the pie? So a strategic planning framework and then um, using processes to do it. So Salesforce uses a mechanism they call V2Mom. Mm-hmm. At PNG, we call it an OGSM, whatever it might be. But you have to understand how the what work you're doing and you're not doing it in isolation but you're doing it to optimize something else and i find when it really works is when somebody says you know i can run and go do all this social stuff but like when people are almost eliminating themselves from a job because they're like i don't know what i how i'm doing anymore ties to this i want to do work that ties toward moving the company forward is when i think you're getting it right so they're not so focused on just optimizing their piece part but optimizing the whole machine if that makes sense and I think the way you get that done is through the V2Mom, but then setting up these kind of full-day QBRs where people can see not just their work, but all their peers present so they can understand how their work hooks into all the other pieces and then, frankly, kind of benchmark themselves on how much they're getting done relative to what others are getting done. And um, and then I think it's just customers. You have to have to stay close to customers and be out in the market. Yeah. So I want to wrap up talking about uh, community. You're a Cincinnati native, but you've made your home in Indianapolis as much as I struggle with that and want you to come back. <laughs> but uh, you know, with that, you've really made a massive impact in building the Midwest as this place for startups and venture capital and everything else. What you, led you to have such a belief in why the Midwest is where you want to bet this next phase of your career as a venture investor and everything else? Yeah, you're too kind. I'm trying to play a part. I mean, you're a big part of that too, Dave, and there's so so many others. And I think, you know, it comes down to a couple things. I had a chance when I left Salesforce to invest in companies anywhere I wanted. And what I found was combined with my experience with trying to raise capital is, is you know, we're going to build a billion dollar company in Indianapolis. People laughed at us, to be honest. They just didn't think it could be done. And our, like somebody's going to be first and we're going to do it. Yeah. And we did. And I think what we're finding is, one, there's just some very practical reasons. The cost of building a business here is now a half to a third of what it is on the coast. 
You combine that with now the technology is not the hard part, it's the domain expertise. So I think a lot of the broad horizontal SaaS applications have been built when you think Dropbox, Salesforce, uh, Slack, et cetera, et cetera. Now I think what you're going to find is people who work in a domain and say, you know what, I worked in this industry and this particular software tool didn't work for me and what I did. It actually needs to be created this way. So they're going to come out of trucking, transportation, they're going to come out of logistics. They're going to come out of CPG. They're going to come out of water management. They're endless verticals, but people have deep domain expertise. And where are real businesses being built that have deep, deep domain expertise? They're in the Midwest. So we're finding the founders coming out of these businesses, then combining it with these sort of open source technology platforms. You combine that with uh, the lower cost of doing business, and now this sort of gravitas and sense of overall momentum in the flywheel that's being developed. I think what's happening here, you know, Steve Case and Rise of the Rest and others have talked about it, but being part of this movement, you can really experience it in a powerful way. And I, I'm absolutely convinced there'll be more billion dollar businesses built outside of the West Coast as there are on. Well, on that point on domain expertise, I think that's so interesting because if you look, there's always been this belief, I think maybe from more of a Silicon Valley mindset of, innovation has to come from the outside because if you're in the industry, you're going to think just how the yeah. industry thinks, you know, take Uber and taxis and everything else. But we're, it seems like we're shifting into this world now where that domain expertise allows you not to be an outsider, but to be a disruptor and to see the inefficiencies yeah. and why an industry needs to change. So, yeah. You know, it's not everybody's wired to be an entrepreneur, yeah. right? And that's okay. So some people are meant to work in industry for a long time, and that's amazing. And I hope they play a role supporting other entrepreneurs yeah. and startups. Others, like you and I, lived inside of these companies and just saw all the problems, and it kind of made us crazy. We wanted to go and, and do something about it. And then how do you bring the best of, like, big companies and the scale that they have with startups and innovation, which is kind of what your whole new movement platform's about. But... I'm absolutely convinced there will be big disruptive ideas that will be technology centric, technology driven, you know, social media and others. But I think many just really important technology businesses are going to be built by somebody who's lived a very acute problem and they know the answer on how to go solve that in a way that I can never imagine because they've lived that pain point and they're now ready to go solve it and they can just go so much faster on, on getting that done. And then also importantly, get very, immediate traction because they're just going right back in and selling to the, their friends and other people in that vertical and they can speak to it with such mastery and credibility. Oh, that's stellar. Well, Tim, it's always such an amazing time to sit down with you and have a conversation. So I could go on for probably hours with you. So Tim, thank you for fun. taking the time. Yeah, thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.